The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7thebronc.com. Proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios at Ryder University, and I'm Professor Jonathan Karp. You are listening to the Health 411 program, which is presented by the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and the Ryder University Health Studies Institute. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the politics of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective on a wide variety of topics. Today, we're gonna have a recording conversation. We're gonna record our conversation um, that Isaac Harris, our producer and I are going to have. We are gonna talk about um, healthy aging with an emphasis on the blood brain barrier. And we'll talk about both of those things. It is sort of uh, appropriate to do it because for a lot of reasons, we, we, we all are aging and we've been doing it since, um, since we were in utero, in, in a sense. But it's sort of um, something to be aware of as we move forward over the next decade, because the United Nations um, has designated the time from 2021 to 2030 as the United Nations of decade of healthy aging, which is a sort of interesting thing to sort of look at it. And there's actually a word in science that the sort of the scientists who study aging have come up with, and it is called geroscience. It's the science of studying about how we age um, sort of healthily, not just age in terms of getting diseases, but how do healthy people age and what changes happen. And to put it in context, Isaac, just as we set up our thing, right. from the time that the sperm and the egg got together that formed us, every one of us started that way, right? Mm -hmm things change and it's not just the number of cells that change but the way the cells connect, talk to each other the way they connect the way they let things in and out what they're forming and if you look at aging as something that starts when you are still in utero and continues for the rest of your life we're never static right humans and animals are changing you know our entire lives and I just want to sort of set up this, this context, because when we look at a lot of science, historically, people have studied disease processes, things that happen to you as a function of maybe a viral insult or a injury or a bacteria, you know, some sort of helmet or something like that, something that gets into your body and changes the way that your body works. And we call that a disease. Uh, but on top of that intervention disease process, when something happens to us, our body is constantly changing. We are not, our, you know, and the, our emphasis today is going to be talking about the central nervous system and the brain. Your brain is not the same as it was when you were five years old 
It's not the same as it was when you were 15 years old. You know, it's your, you know, you're in your, you know, early 20s. It's not going to be the same when you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 60s. And some of that is a natural consequence of aging that's not necessarily disease related. And there's a whole new world of science out there called geroscience, like I mentioned, that the United Nations is recognizing. The, um, the article that you picked that you wanted to talk about today is in a journal called Nature Aging, which is a part of the Nature family of journals, which are sort of the high-end science journals. This happened, Nature happens to be published um, in Great Britain, the, the United States equivalent to science. But, but the, you know, they, okay. they publish some of the high-end stuff. The, 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 this, the Nature family of journals created this Nature Aging Journal, which sort of to, which launched in January 2021. So we are sort of getting people to think about something that is sort of at the forefront of where geroscience, where a lot of scientific effort is sort of headed. Did, did I sort of set this up in a way that provides some background that that makes sense to you, Isaac? Yeah, you, you did, Dr. Carp, because like looking at this initially, I, I've never looked at aging in like in this concept. I've never really thought passive like, oh, we're aging every day and every moment since um, even since when we we're thought of. So this is definitely something uh, new for me, and I'm I got I got I got questions steaming in my head. <laughs> Absolutely, and that, and that's good, <laughs> and that's good because um, we want we want our we want Health four one one to be a conversation that we're having that people listening to can sort of eave, eavesdrop in. Um, so if you have questions, you know, please we don't want this to be a monologue for me like a. A, you know, classes where students haven't haven't done the assigned reading, and the professor ends up monologuing for the class time. We don't want that. No, we, we do not. <laughs> we do not want that. Um, and so, let me give you one more thing that, that that I found out when I was looking at the the decade of healthy aging that, um, of the United of the United Nations. Um, they're predicting that the number of people aged sixty years and older will double by the year 2020, that's in the next 30 years, reaching um, over 20% of the world's population. Um, and that's one reason that, that people are paying more attention to this because there's gonna be more and more older adults um, in the, in not just United, but in the world. Um, and we all would wish that people would age um, in a healthy way is what they call healthy aging, as opposed to um, having diseases and things like that. So are we, any, anything else you want to background stuff you want to talk about before? Well, well for me, for me, um, I guess for healthy aging, the questions that kind of rise that I hope we get to answer is like, in, in a sense, for someone who doesn't know what healthy aging is, what are some of the ways to encourage healthy aging with, uh, with the rise of disease? Oh. Even with pan even with the pandemic, with yeah. stuff coming up, absolutely illness. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things I want to get into regarding to that, and I hope this paper kind of helps me understand those things. All right, so like, okay, I understand what healthy aging is, but how do I start doing it as an early twenty year old college kid that's binging on um, high fumes of sleeping of, of uh, irregular sleep schedule and yeah. 
<laughs> your regular sunny yeah, schedule potato chips coca-cola pizza yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so 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 you bring up um an important thing that I, that i want to i'll introduce here but we'll talk about it in more deal in, in more detail in one of our later segments is that there the even though there the, the, there's a relatively new science over the past 10 years or so that i mentioned it's called geroscience um, where people are studying the basic mechanisms of aging and how to prevent by understanding the basic mechanisms, how to treat age-related kinds of diseases. That science is very, very different than a lot of the, th the things that you're sort of hinting at that have been out in our society ever for a long time. Everything from uh, Ponce de Leon coming from Europe, coming to Florida, looking for the fountain of youth, you know? So, you know, he's, the, the quest for eternal youth has, you know, um, long captured the imagination of artists, authors, kings, queens, and, you know, adventurers and all this sort of stuff. That is not new. Um, in today's world, you can't help go into a, um, a bookstore. Remember bookstores? Yes. I still wish they're open. I still yeah. wish they're yes. open. Well, hopefully there will be. There's just fewer of them than there used to be. But the, the, the example is, I guess this is, this is an old person's example now, is you go into a bookstore and you look at the rows of what the books have. There's going to be a lot of, it's sort of in the help, the self-help sort of sections. There'll be book after book after book about, um, you know, how to age gracefully, how to do this, how to do that. If you go on the internet now and look up, you know, there's a lot of people selling you things, wanting you to subscribe to things. There's a lot of articles out there. Uh, and it's all about, you know, uh, how to keep yourself healthy, how to, you know, prevent wrinkles, um, how to prevent gray hair and all the kinds of things that are sort of natural consequences of aging. So there are huge industries around these things. Um, there are a lot of supplements so that people can take to help, you know, quote unquote, prevent, you know, oxidative stress is one of the you know, cellular things that happens in, in, in aging. And you bring up in a very, very important thing. And, um, and the idea is that there's so much stuff out there. It's everybody, it, it's sort of like noses. Everybody's got one. Everybody's got an opinion on what to do. The problem, the issue is that a lot of these opinions, a lot of these people selling you things, they're not selling you things that are based on science. They're not selling you things that are based on, um, you know, uh, research uh, or a, or even good research. And that is a real issue in something like this because we're all aging, we're all changing. And, you know, um, I wish I had, you know, this, you, you relate to this, when I was 22, you know, I was in college and grad school kind of thing. I was working out and, you know, I had muscles and I had, you know, really, you know, I was, I was actually relatively strong. I wish I had those kind of muscles. I wish that I don't have them anymore. You know, I'm in my, you know, late fifties and physiologically my body doesn't respond to a workout. I can't do the same things anymore. Do I wish I had the same sort of vitality I did when I was 22? Absolutely. But I, I you know, things have changed. People have looked for this through ages. And um, so what can you do is a big issue. It's a big thing because 
it's there's no like magic thing it's going to boil down to you know get enough sleep like you mentioned exercise not just physical exercise but mental exercise eat a more healthy diet you know avoid um you know things that are known to cause cancer or things that are known to cause diseases and that's what the punchline is for all these things that are sort of available and now that you brought it up this theme will underlie some of the science that we will talk about in this program and have talked about in past programs. But right now, let's take a break for some underwriting announcements. You will be right back. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios. Welcome back to Health 411. Um, Isaac Harris and I are having a conversation uh, about healthy aging. Healthy aging is an important thing to be aware of because we are all aging all the time. There's only one alternative to that, Isaac. What is that one alternative to aging? aging um dying dying yeah yeah and so there's a whole area of called healthy aging out there that is coming out of sort of the alternative and complementary um you know cosmic study world and there's a science called geroscience now with new journals being um being um created like the nature journal um, there's actually part of the National Institutes of Health in the United States. There's a National Institute of Aging that's been around for a long time, um, along with the other national institutes that are sort of related diseases. The National Institute on Aging is not studying a disease like the National Cancer Institute or the National Eye Institute or the, you know, the National Institute of Allergy and Infective Diseases you know, or the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. The National Institute of Aging funds most of the, the research in the United States and across the world that involves a natural process that we're all going under. And um, you picked an article to discuss today, Isaac, called Natural, oh, sorry, Healthy Aging and the Blood-Brain Barrier. And this, in the break before this segment, you said one of the reasons this attracted your attention is because of something called Alzheimer's disease. Right? Yes, and correct. What's happening in Alzheimer's disease? Can, so, can you tell us about that connection for you? Uh, for this connection, on reason, the reason why we chose this article is, um, I, I chose this because I, I, my grandmother passed away from Alzheimer's about a little over ten years ago, and uh, her birthday's coming up. So, this is another weird uh, tidbit to this article. But when I think of healthy aging and potentially how the brain ages, to where its different functions. Uh, it kind of, it kind of like maybe curious to like, okay, so is this maybe a setup to how we can figure out how Alzheimer's is originated? Now we already know that that's already been the research has already been shown that there's signs and how, but does this add on to understanding how Alzheimer's and dementia works even more with how we age and what happens? Um, the answer is absolutely, um, and uh, the 
the links are, are still being understood. And this is important to understand. Um, and to, to do that, let's just, just, let's just talk a little bit about Alzheimer's disease. Right. Um, Alzheimer's disease is named after a physician who was named Alzheimer. It's not old timer's disease. Right. Um, what, what my father called it. <laughs> he was called it because, you know, his world, the only people who got it were elderly people. Um, Alzheimer's disease, there's a couple different types of it. There's a familial Alzheimer's disease, which had genetic basis. People with that tend to get Alzheimer's disease a little bit earlier, like in their you know, 40s-ish, 50s. The more traditional, traditional Alzheimer's disease is something that happens to elderly people. Um, you know, 65, 75 years old, stuff like that. Um, nobody knows what really causes Alzheimer's disease, whether it is something that, whether it's a toxic insult, whether it's a viral insult, um, whether it's something that you're exposed to in utero, it's something you're exposed to as a child, or something you're exposed to as an adult. Um, uh, so nobody really knows like a cause to it. Traditionally, classically, people know what the pathology of a traditional Alzheimer's disease brain looks at. Um, and uh, there are things called plaques and tangles that develop in the brain that are some of the anatomical uh, correlates of what we call Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, those the way to sort of envision them without doing a cell molecular biology or neurobiology course is your brain is full of neurons and these neurons are cells. So they have things that are involved with intracellular communication inside of them, but they also have to communicate with um, other cells. And the plaques and the tangles uh, are sort of the morphological things that happen that interfere with intracellular communication and interfere with extracellular communication. And neurons that do not communicate, because uh, that, that's what they're designed to do, um, start to die. And so Alzheimer's disease might start out with plaques and tangles, um, and people might have heard the word tau proteins or amyloid beta proteins. These are some of the proteins that are involved with causing the plaques and tangles. These plaques and tangles um, are sort of the hallmarkers of the cells. Uh, they, they develop and then the cells start to die. And in the Alzheimer's the brain, which in the advanced cases is a global brain disease, but it often starts out, uh, these plaques and tangles start to interfere with cells and therefore function because all behavior is based on nervous system activity in areas of the brain that are involved with uh, learning, memory, um, uh, uh, spatial navigation, um, things like the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, kinds of stuff um, that are sort of the hallmarks of early Alzheimer's disease before it becomes a global brain disease. And this is a very interesting thing to think about Alzheimer's disease is that since nobody knows what causes it, the treatments that are available for patients with Alzheimer's disease tend to be ones that um, either prolong the lifespan of uh, lifespan, not alive, but prevent the restore some of the brain levels of a neurochemical, a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. So some of the drugs are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that will promote the, 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 the maintain the levels of acetylcholine in the brain to try to maintain sort of 
uh, a substitute for cell-cell communication for as long as possible. Some of the other drugs um, um, are, are, are some polymers and some of these drugs that are receptor agonists or so-called. What they do is they're trying to keep the cells talking to each other for as long as they can. But none of those things will stop the progression of Alzheimer's disease once it happens. An interesting thing about Alzheimer's disease um, is that aged brains, aging alone, is the biggest uh, predictor of plaques and tangles forming, in addition to things called Lewy bodies, which are another hallmark of uh, really? microvascular changes. Yes. So what's interesting is that not everybody who has plaques and tangles in their brain um, has Alzheimer's disease, although it is a diagnostic marker after you die and you've had all these behavioral symptoms. Um, and, uh, you know, about, uh, I, I actually, in anticipation of this conversation today, I looked up some stuff. I, I think it was some of what made me think about it too was in the article you picked. Um, and it says, you know, in aging about, if you look at elderly adults, about 4% of cognitively normal have absolutely no pathology. That's a very low number, about 4%. Yeah, I wouldn't think it's that low. Yeah, but that's what the data show, right? Right. About 60% of cognitively normal elderly people, these are humans, right, have evidence of Alzheimer's disease pathology. Those are the plaques and the tangles, about 60%. Right, about forty percent of cognitively normal people have what's called mixed pathology. They have signs of these plaques and tangles, which are characteristic of Alzheimer's disease, but they also have microvascular injury and these other things called Lewy bodies, which are no. I mean, there's a thing called Lewy body dementia, right? Yes. But, but you can have these things and still be cognitively normal. And some of the research suggests only about 1% of the cognitively normal elderly do not have, uh, have like microvascular damage without neuropathology. So even though these markers are the hallmarks of things like Alzheimer's disease in terms of anatomy, the, 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 the research is sort of showing the data, the geroscience is sort of showing us that these things are not necessarily the causes of Alzheimer's disease. There's something that are sort of markers for Alzheimer's disease. Now, whether the cognitively normal people are, you know, on their way to Alzheimer's disease, we know that Alzheimer's disease is not necessarily, you know, a natural consequence of aging. People can age, have some of these markers, and not develop Alzheimer's disease. And that's sort of cool. So with these markers, and I know you mentioned like the low number, the 40% that has these markers, but they don't really show that. Mm -hmm they have Alzheimer's, can that increase over time, potentially with aging? Absolutely. And it's not just time. It can be, inc it can increase like with brain injury. Uh, if you think about the, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the diseases that are happening like in boxers and football players and things like that. So like CTE. Yeah, exactly. CTE, traumatics, uh, and Traumatic brain, repeated low-level brain injuries can cause these things to happen. And some athletes uh, show very dramatic signs and behavioral signs of it. Some of them have these markers and didn't show any signs, right? And yeah. it's, it's the same sort of thing with Alzheimer's disease and some of these other things that are showing up. And we're going to talk about this because you, you mentioned Alzheimer's disease. The Alzheimer's disease is very much these amyloid beta proteins that are involved in that are very much part of the, you know, healthy aging and 
the blood-brain barrier, which we will explain and talk about in the next segment after we take a, a break for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. You're listening to Health 411 in the remote Bronx studios. Welcome back. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp. I am here with Isaac Harris, our student producer. And we are talking about healthy aging in general. And we were talking a bit a little bit about Alzheimer's disease in the last segment. And we want to transition to this article that Isaac found called Healthy Aging and the Blood-Brain Barrier, which is in the new journal, um, Nature Aging. Um, and this is an important article because you know, the, the major focus of you know, biomedical research you know, for the past you know, 80 years has been the pathogenesis and treatment of diseases, especially those that have an effect on morbidity and mortality. And that, that's well and good, but what's happening now is science is starting to recognize that we should study the normal aging process, not just in a developmental way, like developmental biology would study things that are happening in utero, not just in terms of children, but also normal aging, the consequences of aging in adults. And one of the things that people are studying is this thing called the blood-brain barrier. Have you heard about the blood-brain barrier before? Other than reading this article briefly, so my knowledge is not too. I know I've I've heard the I've heard the term, okay, but it's brief. Okay, so before let me give you a as a you know um, as a background in the neuroscience. Let me tell you in a quick overview how to conceptualize this thing called the blood-brain barrier. Perfect. Um, the blood-brain barrier was discovered um, sort of at the tail end of the industrial revolution when people were developing all these industrial dyes for you know, clothing purposes, for coloring things, whatever it was. And some people noticed that you could inject these dyes into um, animals and the muscles, let's say you had a, a, a blue dye just for the sake of discussion. You, you could inject a blue dye into an animal and the muscles would turn blue. The uh, liver would turn blue, the reproductive organs would turn, like everything in the body would turn blue, except the central nervous system, except the brain and spinal cord. They retained their original color. And over time, the anatomical barrier that people discovered that existed came to be known as the blood-brain barrier. It's something that separates the blood, anything that's in the blood, from the extracellular space and the cells that are in the central nervous system, that are in the brain and the spinal cord. Now this blood-brain barrier is critical to the normal working of, working of the brain and the spinal cord. Okay, can you imagine a reason why that might be? Well, is to protect the brain um, since it's a, central, it's a central piece of the oh, body, yep. so. Well, so yeah. is the heart. Yeah, so is the heart, yes. All your lungs, right? you can't lungs. exist without lungs or without a heart. 
Right, but without that, it's like a funk. It helps it function. It makes it function. So. Well, it doesn't make it function. Uh, <laughs> I'll put not the right the term. Not the right so term. I'll, I'll put I'll put it in sort of context in a quick way. The job of your nervous system, and primarily your brain and your spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system to to make what's happening in there reach the rest of the body. But the major function of the central nervous system is to control your behavior. Behavior has two components. Behavior has an internal component. That's the control of all the organs of your body, controlling your muscles, contracting, controlling the movement of uh, you know, foodstuffs, so your GI tract, controlling breathing. Um, but part of controlling the behavior involves interacting with the external world. So the job of the nervous system is to collect information from the external world, integrate that information with what's happening in your body and produce appropriate behavior. So what's happening in your internal world matches the external world, right? Think about shooting a basketball. You've got to have a, a nice sequence of events. But if you were just like flopping around doing, you know, do this while you were sitting at your desk here, like recording Health 411, that would be an inappropriate behavior for your environment. And right. so, so the nervous system, the central nervous system, collects information about the external world, creates a sensory reality, creates it, and then produces behavior that matches that. In order for your nervous system to do this appropriately, the way it works has to be constant all the time. The way the nervous system works cannot have this, this, this wide range. I mean, it has a lot of variability, but its function cannot be subjected to what you ate for your last meal. Mm -hmm. You know, so the ex it can't be related to the fact that you didn't eat for a while, you didn't drink for a while. So the funk, the cells that control that behavior in the nervous system are isolated by the blood-brain barrier from the things that are circulating in the blood. Okay. And that's yeah, important to have a constant function so behavior is predictable um, in an ever-changing external world. Now, the blood-brain barrier is the, 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 in a, are the, the layers of cells that are sort of between the blood and the brain. There's actually, and the article talks about, there are four different kinds of barriers that make up the, the entire blood-brain barrier. There's something called the vascular blood-brain barrier, which are layers of um, endothelial cells um, that are that are important, and we'll talk about them. There's there's certain kinds of cells called astrocytes and pericytes, uh, but there's also a blood cerebral spinal fluid barrier that exists um, in the the ventricles of the brain in the choroid plexus, and those are epidymal cells that make cerebral spinal fluid. There's also something called the meningeal barrier which is in the arachnoid layer and the epithelial cells there. And there's something called the tanocytic barrier, which is around the circumventricular organs. That's where there are natural holes in the blood-brain, the traditional blood-brain barrier, where your brain secretes hormones, your brain can monitor what's in the blood, because your brain knows what's going on in your blood. It's not completely right. cut off for it. And even though these different kinds of different kinds of cells making up these different kinds of barriers, there's also transport mechanisms. There are cells that move important things through these, air, these blood brain areas. What are some of the important things that your brain needs? Well, I, I think for starters is, uh, I, I wanna say oxygen. Absolutely. But, yeah. Oxygen is a really important thing. So oxygen actually diffuses through the blood brain barrier. Your brain also needs fuel. 
right? right? Your brain is their cells. It needs glucose. Well, glucose can't get through the blood-brain barrier. So there are there are glucose receptors. There are transport molecules in the blood-brain barrier that are actually ins that are activated by insulin. And so they will insulin activates these glucose transporters that gets glucose into the blood, into your brain, so the cells can use it. This, the, the, your brain cells, the neurons and glia are also cells, so they need, um, they need amino acids. So there are transport molecules, like um, if you've ever been tired after eating a lot of a meal rich in tryptophan, a lot of people think that has to do with, because tryptophan is going to be preferentially transported through these large neutral amino acid transporters, Tryptophan is one of them into the brains. So it's going to compete with other amino acids. So there's going to be these transport mechanisms. All okay. these things are part of the blood-brain barrier. So the blood-brain barrier is not, the joke is the Great Wall of China. Things right. can get through, but if in, 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 a normal, in a normal part of physiology is the things that get through are regulated. So it's almost like a gate per se, instead of like an actual like, barrier it's a gate that like kind of lets certain things in that needs to be in there correct and remember too it's not just certain things in it's also certain things out right so the transport mechanism and, and to bring up you know oxygen diffuses in um carbon dioxide diffuses out you know right. there are metabolic waste just from cellular activity that are dumped in the cerebral spinal fluid and that is it leaves to the venous drainage um of the brain um, and that, that's those, those barriers that we call the blood brain barrier, um, change as a function of age, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, glucose, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little bit related to blood flow too, but there are, you know, time dependent changes based on age that are part of normal aging. And some of those time dependent change changes are due to, um, cells not working as well or cellular damage and the things that can cause that um as, as in normal aging include things like we mentioned before of oxidative stress um those are free radical kinds of damage there are uh epigenetic modifications which are experience or environmentally induced changes and um through either through histone or methylation of DNA that influences what genes are turned on and turned off in cells. You can have um, telomere shortening, which a lot of people know happens in cells, you know, as they age and cells that are dividing like glial cells. You can have inflammation, you have changes in cell signaling, you have changes in the way that cells, you know, the number of processes they have. There's a whole, talking to each other, there's a whole bunch of time-dependent accumulation related to cellular damage that are the natural consequences of aging. Um, and that's going to mean that a brain can be both aged, and this is using the language of geroscience, a brain can be both aged and healthy at the same time. Wow. And that's sort of cool because remember, we're aging all the time, but a lot right. of us age and very, very healthy, right? And what we talked about before is sort of important, and we're going to come back to this, is that some level of pathology is usually present in aging brains, even in the absence of clinical disease. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. And we will talk about some of the details, what's happening in a blood-brain barrier after we break for a few underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.
This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7 TheBronc.com. Welcome back to Health 411. We are recording from the remote Bronx studios at Rider University. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I'm having a conversation with Isaac Harris. We are talking about healthy healthy aging in the context of the blood-brain barrier. And at the end, of the last segment, we mentioned that the absence of any neuropathology in aging brain is usually the exception rather than the rule, that some level of pathology is a natural consequence of aging, even though, um, you know, diminution in cognitive performance is not necessarily a, a, a normal component of aging. And there's a little science of trying to study the biological mechanisms of normal aging that's not disease related and trying to understand it to try to promote healthy aging um, because we all want to age healthily in, in, for a lot of reasons, especially as it re relates to cognitive abilities because we just don't want to live longer and then be in really bad shape and then just because right. we're living longer, it's not our quality of life is not necessarily good. And the quality of life of the people who have to take care of us is not nearly good because the stresses and strains, both financial and on families and, you know, are, are, are pretty extreme. Um, and so the blood brain barrier is one of the things that changes um, as a natural consequence of, of, of aging. One of the things that changes as a natural consequence of aging is some of the transport functions of the blood-brain barrier that we were talking about before. Remember right. those, Isaac? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I actually do have a question regarding Oh yeah, that. okay, go ahead before I talk. About so now questions. since we're talking about aging, do the blood barriers age with us too? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And does that like lead to anything? If you want to expand on that going into it? Well, a lot of a, a lot of the the aging that happens um, of the blood brain barrier is sort of similar to aging and just the lifetime of a lot of our cellular physiology all over our body. Okay. Um, an example uh, off the top of my head that a lot of people can relate to: Have you ever eaten a hot piece of pizza that's yes. too hot and you bite it and you have, it, but then you lose the ability to taste for a little bit of time? Yeah. Right? Yeah, that, I've that had happened. that feeling a lot. That, that <laughs> more than more than more more than most people, sadly. But yes. <laughs> but one one explanation for that is if you put something that's too hot into your mouth, you are actually killing with the heat some of the cells that are responsible for tasting food and other things. Okay. Yeah, over so you lose the ability to taste for a short amount of time. However, what happens over time? Your ability to taste comes back. Why is that? Yeah. Because the dead cells have been replaced with new cells that have the same function and connect to your neurons that are going to send taste information to your the sensory areas of your brain. And it comes back. The some of the cells that are in, in your in your central nervous system in your brain have the same sort of thing. They have a life cycle. 
your olfactory epithelial cells have a life cycle, your taste buds have a life cycle, the skin cells on your skin have a life cycle, right? Right. And so what happens is, is these cells are being born, they do their job, they're di they die and they're replaced. That's not, that shouldn't be a difficult concept in just thinking about, you know, cell physiology. But some of the cells of the blood-brain barrier are the same sort of thing. And there's these division cycles that happen. That's why some of the natural consequences of aging can be related to things like telomere shortening, genomic instability, because you know, with cell division, mistakes build up, right? If the mistakes get bad enough, that can be like cancer, you know, kind of things. Um, and so the blood brain, the cells that made up your blood brain barrier when you were you know, a, you know, 15 years old are probably not the identical cells that you have in your brain now because okay. there's been cellular turnover. The function though, doesn't change. One of the functions of the blood brain barrier is transport of things in and things out. And what's interesting is what, even though a lot remains to be learned and studied is that there's a transport mechanism um, that is a it's, it's, it's uh, called large neutral amino acid transporter and something called P-glycoprotein. Both of those proteins are altered in normal aging. And what's interesting is people have studied some of these uh, um, proteins that work and they interact with other proteins um, and the, 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 their function can change over time. Um, and I, I mentioned the role of the large neutral, amino, large neutral amino acid transporters. Some of that goes down. The ability to transport those things in the brain diminishes um, as people get to get older. There's another one called a low density lipoprotein receptor, protein one. That's the same um, you know, uh, low density lipoprotein that people talk about when we talk about cholesterol. Changes in that chain, uh, are a normal consequence of aging. What's interesting about that protein is that protein is involved with removing amyloid beta from the brain. Amyloid oh. beta, those the cause that's involved with some of the Alzheimer's disease pathology, these are not proteins that only show up in Alzheimer's disease. What happens is they become, they accumulate or become misfolded in Alzheimer's disease. So it means in people with Alzheimer's disease, there's a way of removing these these peptides and proteins from the brain. This, you know, low density lipoprotein um, uh, receptor related protein one is one of those ways of removing amyloid beta from the brain. And if its transport mechanism diminishes as a natural consequence of aging, one could imagine that might be something that is related to why beta amyloid builds up in both Alzheimer's disease and non-Alzheimer's disease brains. Mm. Pretty cool, it's, huh? Yeah, inter it's interesting to me because you think like that it'd be reason. And that's what I was like curious. I'm like, well, if if there's any leakage with the blood brain barrier and stuff gets in, does it does it lead to does it lead does it increase the risk or increase any possibility that does that it does lead to congenital diseases like Alzheimer's or dementia? Yeah, and, and that, that's what needs to be found out. Right. You know, like what at what, what point or what's the cofactor? What's the mechanism that distinguishes normal, healthy aging from pathological aging? Right. At some right. point, everybody can agree it's pathological, but not everybody who has those things has the pathology. 
Another important thing that's coming out of the studying all these things is people know that uh, it's just a fact in our in our society that as people get older, they take more and more medicines, right? Prescription. Right. I'm not talking about recreational meds. Prescription meds, mm-hmm. right? Most of the drugs that that are act in the central nervous system enter the brain through some sort of transmembrane um, diffusion kind of thing, or some of them are actively transported in, but a lot of that. Well, what happens is that if some of these transport mechanisms, like I mentioned the P-glycoprotein, if those things are involved with transport and you, you know the, the P-glycoprotein activity is decreased um, by normal aging, right? It's gonna inf- influence how effective some of these psychoactive drugs are, whether they're antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, opiates, right? Many of these kinds of drugs are, you know, are, are, are P-glycoprotein substrates or inhibitors. Therefore, deficiencies that are a normal part of aging could influence how these drugs work in the elderly population. Okay. You know, and that's just something to be aware of, right? Also, there's this thing called the glymphatic system. This is the sort of the movement of fluids through the brain and there's surges of this during slow wave sleep when people are sleeping, right? And it's, so some things move through the brain like just by diffusion, which is molecules going from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. But there's also this thing called convection that is talked about in that article. That's where it's not just the molecules, but it's also the solute that moves through the brain. And there are some, molecules that people are discovering in the brain that are related to age-related changes in glymphatic in the glymphatic system right that's just oh, the yeah. movement of molecules in and out of the brain and the cerebral spinal fluid and the rate of cerebral spinal fluid is one of the things that changes in the brain in a young adult brain for example you might have 150 mils of cerebral spinal fluid in your nervous system right now but you make four to five times that much cerebral spinal fluid every 24 hours. So when, when we get older, it, it decreases. It, it the production. Yeah, okay. So the ability to flush out metabolic wastes that are normally flushed out in cerebral spinal fluid is a little bit diminished as a natural consequence of aging, even in a non-disease brain. Right. Right. And so all these sort of things are important, you know? And, and a great example of a non-disease thing, people know that as people age, their vascular, the flexibility of their vascular changes, um, and, and it, it diminishes, you lose some elasticity. And that influences even glucose utilization in the brain. The glucose utilization of a young brain is much higher than the glucose utilization of an older brain. It doesn't mean there's a disease state, but the ability of get, of, to, for glucose to get in there changes. Right mm-hmm. in, in in an aging brain, it's usually you know you have decreased glucose transport across the blood brain barrier. Now, is it because the brain is starving, or is it a natural consequence of aging? So, Interesting things to think about. So, my last question here, thinking about it, is: Do you think do you think that if if there's a way to limit or lower the pace of of the aging of the blood barrier, do you think there'd be do you think it would like decrease i guess any type of cognitive degree so let's say like we it's uh, the production of the 
of the cells in that bradbury area or the movement of it is at like at a decent pace so it's not like decreasing rapidly but it's decreasing at like a average pace does that do you think that would be a huge benefactor to that well it, it would it would everything is relative right mm -hmm. increasing something for the sake of increasing something may not be good right you know? um it would have to be done in context the idea is i think the thinking is can you slow some of these age-related declines to prolong sort of a youthful brain and nervous system i think that would be sort of the goal right um and it's sort of a it's it's a subtle thing a subtle difference that you're sort of saying mm -hmm. um but it'd have to be done in context okay that, that's that's true yeah that, that makes um, a lot of sense it, it's a great would be a great conversation we could have at another time isaac um mm -hmm. unfortunately we're running out of time unfortunately yeah. this will work best um this is Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. Uh, thank you for listening. This program is part of Ryder University's efforts to bring people together to address all sorts of issues affecting health and healthcare. We hope today's conversation has given you something to think about in terms of healthy aging, especially in the context of the blood-brain barrier. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.